This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Solutions, the leading iGaming PAM platform with a modular approach, including many benefits like a fast, secure, and scalable API-based platform integrated with all major third-party products and services. Make sure you head over to Pragmatic Solutions and join our smart thinking. Martin, uh, as I mentioned here just uh, before, I did a little bit of a deep dive in, uh, in GIG's history here recently. And uh, I just want to say, like, a couple of years ago, almost exactly three years ago today, the share price was at the bottom. Um, you had a market cap of that time at around 20 million euro. And the business was hanging in the balance to some extent. Since then, the business has gone just from strength to strength to strength to strength. And today you have a market cap around 250 million euro, uh, a 10 doubling of the, uh, of the low point uh, three years ago. So I wanted to start off by asking today, three years ago today, when you woke up in the morning, how did you feel? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, I was only a year into being at gig. Um, so, you know, it takes a little bit of time to get to understand the true scenario with an organisation. Um, 12 months is probably a good place to be. Um, in that initial 12-month period, um, I certainly saw and was involved in a lot of discussions about how we had to how we had to rescue the situation. Because the fact of the matter was is that we had a bond that needed to be repaid. It's just a simple fact. Um, there's, no, there's no getting away from it. Um, however, I think that from Q3 2019 onwards, there was definitely a, a very, very specific focus about the leadership within the organisation. We were keen to strip back against all the different revenue streams that we had within the organisation. Um, and we really, really wanted to focus. I suppose the decision at that time was, will we focus on B2C or will we focus on B2B? Um, we looked at all the numbers, we looked at the growth that we could achieve, we looked at the opportunity within the market, and we believed, and we still continue to believe, that B2B is really where the opportunity was. And I think if you take, when I woke up that morning, I was still comfortable, I genuinely was. Um, genuinely was the steps that we were taking in order to divest the B2C side. Um, I think the guys that did that did a fantastic job. Um, we were in a difficult situation, which was public, and that doesn't make it easy to negotiate. But they did a great job and took us on a trajectory that's got us to where we are today. So that's really the, the starting point. The starting point always is the lowest ebb, right? Yeah. And then you take that, you you decide how you're going to action against it and and take control of the challenges and take it forward and there's been no looking back since then um don't get me wrong we're still in a challenging market all right we're still in a um in a place where we want to achieve more and have a, a bigger market cap and deliver more shareholder value but when you look back and you look at what's been achieved it's been a fantastic um a fantastic job by everybody within the organisation and again I'll go back to the leadership team, the the focus, the, the, the focus vision in order to take the organisation where it had to go has been phenomenal, it's been great and to be part of that and to help action some of those decisions and be involved in some of those decisions has been a great experience for me, I've loved every minute of it. Yeah, I can imagine, and I, I can also imagine, you know, going through those uh, times when the business financially wasn't doing well, and uh, obviously it was uh, losing money for 
quite a number of consecutive quarters. Um, I would imagine that the business became very bootstrapped at that time. And uh, now as we go, I'm looking at the Q4 2022 report here with, you know, you're reporting all-time high numbers on pretty much every single uh, metric that you can look at uh, here, and uh, the business is, is generating cash again. Um, it's, it must be a, a bit of an interesting transition that the business is going through now, perhaps from being very bootstrapped into becoming a, a profitable business again with all that that brings. I mean, you did you see the acquisition of us gamblers and... Yeah. You know, it's your building again. Like, can you feel that transition too? Or yeah, we we made an acquisition on the platform side of the business with Sporting right. Co last year as well. I think, but I think what's really important here to understand is is that whether you're facing challenges or whether the sun's shining, you need to have a balance in your approach. Um, there's a, a saying that everybody will have heard that make make hay while the sun shines, and although there's an element of truth to that, and you need to take advantage, there needs to be balance and how you approach things. And I think that's exactly the same situation when things are bad and things are, 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 are being found difficult. So what do I mean by that? That if back in 2020, when we entered this situation, what we realized was, is that we had to cut costs, we had to cut back, we had to be more efficient as an organization, and we had to increase revenue at the same time. Now that's not an easy task. Um, to be able to simultaneously deliver both of those elements. And what we managed to do with, with, data -driven, with a data-driven approach was actually, in some cases, be able to invest in a situation that we know that would deliver more revenue and more efficiency across the organisation. The, the maturing process within GIG over the, the last three years has been incredible. You know, I, I, I look back again and I think about some of the things that, that happened maybe in 2019 um, and some of, the, um, some of the strategic directions that we took prior to, to all of this happening. And then I look at it as now and there's, there's more people involved, there's more data, there's more consideration, there's more expertise. And whether it's a challenge or whether it's an opportunity, you still need to have that same approach. And I think that's where we've got as an organisation. And that's that base of decision making is at the core of the success that we've had. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. And I mean, at that time as well, when you chose to divest the B2C part of the business, it was also a lot of voices that were saying that uh, divesting the B2C was a mistake. And actually, um, that was probably what the business should have focused on at that time. Uh, and obviously, the, as you mentioned yourself, like being in the negotiation side when the other side has leverage uh, on your negotiation, knowing that you have to divest this part, uh, it resulted in a quite low, um, uh, in, in a quite low multiple on, on, on that business, of course, coupled with the fact that, you know, regulation was uh, really tough at that time uh, as well. And um, did you ever, like internally in the business at that time, was there ever really a consideration whether to invest, whether to divest B2C or B2B? Or was that always like a pretty straightforward decision? I think the, the, the simple answer to that question is, is if you look at what had to be paid back and what the value of yeah. all, all the other businesses were, then B2C was the obvious answer in terms of being able to get that um, being able to get that cash to pay it off and to be able to yeah. sustain the organisation. But if, if you put that to the side, um, 
f- from my perspective, um, the fact of the matter is, is that if it had been possible, then either decision is right or wrong. Now, I'm a B2B guy. You know, I've always worked on the B2B side. So if they gone, if we decided to go down the B2C line, I probably wouldn't have been in the organisation anymore, in all honesty. Um, but it's not about the decision. It's about how you action against that decision and how you embrace it and how you drive it forward. We still have somewhere in the region of maybe 60, 70 people who worked on the B2C side of our organisation and they deliver managed services um, on behalf of some of our customers. And when I look at those guys, and they've had to make a transition as well because even though they're delivering B2C and they're working on a brand and they're doing what they did day-to-day previously, it's still delivering on behalf of a customer. So this transition had to happen regardless. Um, So in answer to your question, Pierre, I think that we made the decision we had to. Yep. And it was probably, in all honesty, the only option. We had to uncomplicate our organisation. So if we'd had B2C, the brands, and we'd had media, would that have been as was that would that have would that have as many synergies as media and platform? I'm not sure. Yep. I I always claim when I'm speaking to customers that we have a bit of an unfair advantage. Because when we start looking at business plans and uh, potential CPAs and, and different um, performance metrics, I can see that through the, the media side of our organisation because they are driving traffic in the majority of markets where we operate as a platform. So that was a big um, sort of unfair advantage that we could take advantage of. Now, there's definite un- unfair advantages between media and B2C, but I think that synergy yeah. in itself was... It really helped us as an organisation come together and work towards our goals. Yeah, yeah. And, and I want to go into that too. So essentially, after the divestment of B2C, uh, you became an organisation that had a media arm and a platform arm, so to say. Uh, so it's kind of two, two arms of the company. Now, recently, uh, you announced that uh, the intention is to split the business in two. So essentially, uh, you'll have two publicly traded companies, uh, one which is the media, and one which is uh, taking care of the platform uh, services. Um, so that's also like when you navigated through these years after the divestment of B two C, was was it a bit weird spot for the business as well to uh, to have these two different arms in the company that, from the outside at least, didn't seem to uh, have that many synergies between them? Or is there more behind kind of the okay. like? Well, I mentioned the, I mentioned the obvious yeah. unfair advantage. Right. You know, we are speaking to people who are going to operate in markets that we have data on and we understand intimately mm-hmm. um, through the actions that we have um, on the media side. But put that to the side. Let's let's think about it just from a solely um, business perspective. You have a, a media arm that generates revenue relatively quickly in comparison to a platform business, which is a, a slow slower burner in terms of actually generating the revenue. So, like, for example, I (laughs) always use this example when I'm speaking to the media guys, but in theory, they could walk into a room with an operator, close a deal there and then, and have it up and live the next day. Now, obviously, it takes a little bit longer than that, but on the platform side, the average sales cycle is six months plus. So, it's a much different model, and actually, the two models complement one another. Platform builds okay exponentially as you add more customers to it and you right. get scale. Right. 
Whereas the media side of it, it does do that to a degree, but it does it much faster. Right. Um, I suppose the, depend the two dependencies are different as well. Media has a dependency on Google, okay, and the algorithm from right. Google. Where I, and that's something that you can't control. Whereas on the platform side, it's very much tech-based. So, and you do actually have control on that. So again, it's a different dynamic. Right. And it moves at a different pace. But they actually complement one another. And what you'll see over the last three years is, is that media has obviously contributed a lot of cash. All right, but platform has grown significantly. Year on year from 2019, it's significantly grown. We're now... Um, we're now... At, we're now, I think it's 300%, 400% in terms of revenue ahead yeah. of where we were in 2019. But what people forget, because you look back and everybody goes, why was it so little? We, we, we were moving away from the white label model and moving into... Yeah, into Palm. Yes. Exactly, into the own licensed operators, etc. So that yeah. was a transition in itself happening yeah. at the time. So that was a, a transition in the transition exactly. say, of the business. Yeah. <laughs> we we yeah. wanted to move away from the liability of the white label model. Right. Um, and that, that, that increased the risk profile of the company, basically, because it, it was something, maybe you can explain it better than me, but in the white label model, essentially, a lot of risk in the business was based on what your customers uh, were, like what marketing activities yep. they were conducting. You were liable for their decisions, essentially. Absolutely. Everything that they did publicly on the front end in terms of marketing, in terms of anything that touched the customer could directly impact us because we are the license holder. So we decided we wanted to move away from that and make sure that all licenses were on the side of the operator. Right. We, we're basically a SaaS solution now. We're not a white, a white label yeah. operator at all. Yeah, yeah. interesting. So um, now we come to the point then that uh, the decision is taken within the business to split the two arms into two separate entities. Uh, can you talk about uh, why that decision was taken? Oh, I spoke about maturity earlier in terms of how from 2020 when we initially made the decision to divest B2C and move towards being a B2B organisation and then we spoke about how the obvious synergies in terms of cash generation, fast quick cash generation from the media side and then on the platform side you grow exponentially but a little bit slower because of regulation of technology, of delivery, it's, it's all a little bit slower but we've got to that point now whereby Media is obviously generating a lot of cash. You can see that in the report. There's no question about it. They're doing a great job. And um, they've been in a position, of it, or we've been in a position, obviously, to make acquisitions recently, which I, I think we'll touch upon at some point. Um, but if you take, if you look at the platform side, you might look at it and you might go, well, actually, you know what? That, is that ready to take that step? But the fact of the matter is, is that last year we signed 20 new customers at Gig. And some of them are already alive, but many of them are still in the pipe. We know what that revenue is going to look like. Right? So as a consequence of understanding that and being in a really strong position um, in terms of generating cash from the platform side, it made absolute sense to split them off and deliver more shareholder value. There was no question about that. Um, um, but we've got to that point now where we can really drive that value. And that's what we've been working for, at for the last three years. So this, this was no surprise. It was... 
it was always inevitable that this was going to yeah. happen. You know, it, if you looked at it and you thought otherwise, then I would maybe question your business acumen, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was just it just made sense. It made perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There were, there were even a few little leaks uh, that happened there uh, a year or so ago as well on that side as well. So it was uh, not not unexpected for sure. Yeah, let's, we shan't talk about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Um, so, so essentially, a strategic review has now been put in place to understand how to split one company into two, uh, essentially. So there must be a lot of different considerations here when you, uh, when you, when you go upon uh, such a mission. Um, I suppose that, you know, Richard Brown, your CEO, has to choose one side or the other. There has to be another CEO that comes into place to the other part. Then you split two businesses. Do you need a new office? Like, like where are you? Like, can you talk a little bit where, maybe where you, where you are in the strategic review and what are like the complications of doing something like this, perhaps? Okay, so we're right at the very start. Um, it's, it's obvious from a business perspective, this is the right thing to do. But in terms of the the micro decisions, let's call them that. Yeah. I don't mean they're small. I mean that they're in yeah. terms of the macro element, they're yeah. small, right? Yeah. yeah. So um in terms of the micro decisions, um, all of these things need to be made. But I want to go back to my previous point again about where we are in terms of maturity. So this is a data driven process. We make decisions on the basis of what is right for the organization. Um we've made this decision to split. Okay, and what we'll do is we'll analyse every single element, every decision that needs to be made. We'll look at the pros and the cons, and we'll decide from there what the right thing to do is. Right. So in terms of who's going to be CEO of, of either business, yeah. we, we don't know yet. Or even we like the know. names of the business. Like, will you keep the gig name for both businesses or one of them, and then that's totally new brand for the other? Or Absolutely. It, yeah. it really depends. You need to look at the impact. And we, we will. We'll sit down and we'll look at the impact. So if media... Um, have gig media and we have gig platform. You know what's what what if somebody rebrands? What's the impact on their organisation? What's their impact on revenue potential? You know, could it be a good thing to get away from the gig brand? You know, these are the things that we need to take into account and make a decision on. Yeah. Um, so all all of these elements are are on the table at the minute and have to be yeah. considered. And there isn't any set timeline for. For this, or I think we said that we would have everything ironed out by Christmas. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, a, it's yeah. a year process, basically. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's a huge, huge undertaking to split the business into. I would just imagine, at least, yeah. Absolutely, <laughs> and imagine all the data points and everything yeah. you need to consider before you make that decision. So, yeah. but the key focus is again delivering shareholder value. So that 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 will be the key element. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Uh, I want to ask you as well, uh, obviously, Martin, you are uh, the Director of Sales and, and Business Development on the uh, platform side of the business. And uh, I understand that the um, uh, the operation of the business is somewhat split in two when it comes to the to media and uh, and platform. But I, I'm really curious to know a little bit more on the acquisition of uh, us gamblers on the, um, uh, on the media side of things. You know, it was kind of funny in a way that um, a couple of years ago, you divested the B2C part to a fairly low multiple at that time. And, you know, with the success of the business, now you were able to acquire a business at a fairly mo low multiple. I believe um, Elskamblis was acquired at something around four times EBITDA, which was actually similar to uh, the divestment of, um, uh, of the B2C brand over around four times uh, EBITDA as well a couple of years ago. Um, but I want to ask uh, uh, kind of like what... what um, what was the uh, business sense in acquiring 
uh, ask gamblers. Catena uh, uh, Media, obviously, who, who sold it, uh, decided they want to focus more in the North American market, so they uh, publicly announced that they are uh, divesting Ask Gamblers, their, their flagship brand. Uh, at the same time, um, I, I understand you can't comment on this uh, specifically, but uh, the rumors were that uh, the Ask Gamblers brand weren't doing great financially, that they, they were that uh, that um, uh, year over year the the revenues were lowered. Uh, but what was the business sense for uh, for for Gig to pick up this brand, and what's the kind of idea behind the acquisition? Okay, so you're, you're right. I mean, in terms of down in dirty data, I can't really help you because. Yep. I um I wasn't involved in the process whatsoever. Yep. But what I can say is is that knowing the guys on the media side of our organization, they definitely saw an opportunity here. Yep. There's there's no question about that. Um I said earlier that from a sales perspective, um the complexity of a media sale is very different to a platform and I stand by that. But the actual business itself is equally as complex in terms of the strategy and how to deliver it and how to deliver value across all of your domains and your sites and everything that you have, there's a massive complexity to it. And I've never worked with a group of guys who are so passionate and knowledgeable about what they're trying to deliver. I mean, they are, I spoke about laser focus earlier, but these guys are on a different level. They really are. The, the focus that they have on their KPIs is incredible. Yeah. So I would say that they definitely saw an opportunity here. Um, and maybe some gaps in terms of what we deliver um, from the media side already, what we already had within the portfolio. And they definitely see the ability to um, to positively impact the business that already exists. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. And going back a bit uh, uh, in time as well, obviously you acquired Sporting Co. on the, um, on the platform side uh, recently, which is uh, perhaps then closer to your day-to-day -day work. Can you talk now in hindsight as well, like uh, how... Uh, that acquisition happened, uh, has it been successful? Has it turned out the way you wanted to? Mm -hmm. What are the results of this uh, acquisition that you did? So it's funny, just um, three weeks ago, I was in Madrid for a, uh, an integration um, workshop. So we've had two or three of these over the last year. By integration, you know, it, it sounds very technical when you say integration, but it's from a cultural perspective as well. Okay. Yeah. You know, the Sport & Co guys are, um, are a French business and they had Technalis that they had purchased uh, prior to us purchasing them. And they're a Spanish business. So we've taken a lot of steps in order to be able to integrate our culturally, our processes, our outlook. Again, the, the maturity element comes into it as well. And you need to... Um, and you need to work in order to get onto the same page about how you approach things and how you analyse things and how you come to decisions. But, I mean, from my perspective, what what Sporting Co allowed us to do was deliver a true platform experience end-to-end. -end. And there's not very many of those already existing within the industry. So if you look at the majority of combinations within the US, for example, it tends to be a PAM and a sportsbook combo. So that's two different types of technology that are working together. That means that the customer most likely has two different user interfaces that they need to interact with. What we can do as a consequence of buying Sporting Co is deliver a, a seamless experience for the actual operator so that they don't feel that there's a massive difference between jumping from the PAM and the Sportsbook component. And that, that's a real advantage for us, for sure. Um, so we, as a consequence of having that, we've definitely had 
opportunities come to us that probably wouldn't have done previously. Um, and when we did this deal, I was very, very vocal about the fact that I saw it as a massive positive step. Right. And that, and f from from a commercial perspective, there's definitely nothing that changes my mind about that. Right. We have a, a great team of, I mean, gig, we had gig sports, but we had very little sports expertise within the organisation. We were a traditional, um, prior to the divestiture, B2C um, casino business. That's what we did. That's what, if you look at the brands that we created, Risk and Guts, etc., they're they're renowned for being great casino experiences. We maybe didn't have that experience on the on the sports side to the degree that we would have liked. So bringing these guys in, um, you know, dealing with trading um, trading teams that are really experienced that deliver seventeen percent margin in a complex, highly taxed market like France, you know, to be, the ability to do that is unbelievable. So, and then and I'm a bit I, I love sports myself. Yeah. Um, and the ability to be able to have a, a conversation with somebody about the rugby or the football <laughs> or anything like that. That was, be, tr be truthful now, that was the main reason behind acquisition. Absolutely. Right? So you yeah. can have some more friends to talk sports uh, to uh, in, the, in the office. Absolutely. But unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, Pierre, France beat Scotland at the weekend in the uh, rugby. So <laughs> Well, okay, back to square one. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Maybe you need to sell the business. Anyway. <laughs> uh, you, mentioned, um, you mentioned North America briefly uh, there earlier as well. Um, What's the uh, how do you how do how does Gig view the North American opportunity? You know now the dust is uh, kind of settling on the market somewhat. It's turning out to be almost a duopoly, the North American market between DraftKings and, and uh, FanDuel, who together own seventy five percent of the sports betting uh, uh, GGR uh, in in the month of December. Mm -hmm. uh, there's another two operators that are uh, accumulating a decent amount of GGR, but then you have something like sixty seventy. Um, operators that are like fighting for the rests for the crumbles essentially so i'm getting ahead of myself here a bit how does dig look at the north american opportunity and then perhaps can you talk a little bit more to this like very strange landscape in the north american market okay well the, the u.s market is is definitely a challenge there's no question right. about it but as i said earlier again you know at gig we really like to embrace challenges um I think you need to be calculated about it and you need to be data driven about it and understand exactly where the opportunity lies. But yeah, you mentioned the word duopoly. I'm not sure I would call it a duopoly yet, um, <laughs> but for sure the data definitely looks towards that. Um, and But there, there's definite opportunity in some states, I believe, um, for, for other sports books. Um, I'll talk about one of our partners that's imminently going to go live. Um, we, 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 we are working with a, a brand that's going to be called Crab Sports in Maryland. Um, and these guys, I don't know if you're aware, but the crab is the national animal of Maryland. Um, because, <laughs> I didn't know that, actually. Yeah, yeah. If you, if you go to Baltimore... I learned something new today. Thank yeah, you, if you. If you go to Baltimore, there's loads of crab boats. Crabs everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Exactly. And they have these crab shacks. Okay. Um, it's like um, SpongeBob SquarePants, right? Yeah, yeah, there we go. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Patrick. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so in these type of localised scenarios, I think there's definitely opportunity for... Um, organizations and brands to really personalize their approach to the customer and I think that will reap growth for sure. I don't think that these guys will have the level of um, bonus spend and marketing spend that the DraftKings and your fan jewels have 
Um, MGM have come out publicly and said that they're going to reduce the amount of spend that they have in this. I, I saw their report the other day. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, I, I, it makes sense why they're doing that, right? It makes yeah. perfect sense. Um, so in terms of sports, I think the localised and the tribal element where you can personalise and there's obviously a, a negative sentiment towards Fangio and DraftKings from some of the tribes, certainly in California, from the conversations that I've had. So there's an opportunity there from that perspective. Um, I'll come back to that in terms of um, in terms of proprietary technology in a second, because I think that's important as well, right? But then you have the casino element as well. Now, iCasino is live in six states in the US, and every time I see a new state putting a bill in, it seems to be shut down <laughs> before it's even started. Yeah. Like we, we saw Indiana the other day. Right. Maryland's also put in an iCasino bill. Yeah. Um, there's various others. Yeah. Um, New, York. New York as well, right. exactly, right? Um, but what, what I see here is I see, I, I'll go back to maturity as well. I think this is going to be my mantra for the rest of the, the podcast. Yep. But, but, but maturity is really, really important here. When you look at how the lobby is approaching the scenario, it seems to me that we need to be a little bit more corporate about our approach and actually show the true benefits to the, the state and having this offering for for their population. Um, a lot of people say, that, say it's obvious, it's tax revenue, but actually you're going to be competing directly against the state lottery, who delivers a lot of revenue already. Now, is that going to cannibalise that revenue, or is it going to be on top of that revenue? And I don't think this is a question that's been answered. You know, if they're doing scratch cards, will somebody go online and play a slot instead of buying a scratch card. These are, this is the question that we need to answer because it's the state lotteries, particularly in Indiana, it seems, that are blocking this and are, are very much against this scenario. Right. So therefore, we need to look at it from their perspective. We need to turn it around a little bit and say, do you know what? Actually, I can see it from their perspective. If I was in that situation, what would I accept? And that's how we need to approach it because... I can see, you know, everybody admits it, it's a massive opportunity in the States, but if we're only six states and now we are five, six years into the project, it's not got the level of growth that the majority of people anticipated. No. Um, and I wonder as well that in terms of multiples of, of value, whether that's actually impacting some of the duopoly and, yeah. and their overall valuations. Right. You know, by not opening up more states to I casino. So... Yeah, I think that's an issue. I think that's that's another consideration. Um, yeah. But coming back to um, proprietary technology, yes. um, I think it's um, it's really interesting that cash has become more expensive. Okay, it's, there's no question. Cash has become more expensive. So therefore, any organisation, forget about iGaming, forget about sports betting, any organisation has to consider their position when they're investing. And I think that given the current scenario, the way that they go about doing that has to vastly change. Uh, we've seen a few players in the States in particular go and buy um, sportsbooks and it's not worked out the way they intended. In fact, again, I think it was just this morning I saw the Bally's CEO um, talk about Betworks and the issue that they've had with that investment. Yeah, yeah, they uh, talked publicly about that was... Uh Mistake. Absolutely. And, and listen, this is what's important is, is that tech takes time. Even if um, you're building it from scratch, 
it takes time to get it where you want, particularly in an unharmonized, regulated scenario. You know, if you're in the States and you're in 20 states, that's 20 different scenarios you need to deliver. So to get to a point where each of them are competitive takes a lot of time and a lot of investment. And the ROI on it, I'd, I would imagine that particularly US investors are looking for a quicker ROI, right. you know, because it, right. it takes a lot of time. So what does, what does that mean for gig? That means that there's actually an opportunity for gig. Um, I, I think that the industry and, or the economy works in cycles. It's not as obvious as, as I would like it to be so I could explain this. But the, fact of the, <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, is that if you look back to 2017, 2018, there was lots of sports books, independent third-party sports books doing deals with big players. And then what happened was, is that they had a cash surplus or a massive investment, or they did a SPAC, or they did something in order to yep. generate revenue, which isn't possible now. And then they decided to buy their own sports book. I think Penn is the perfect example of that, yep. right? And they decided to go and have the, the, entirely their own stack. Um, but there's several examples of that. It's not just um, Penn. There's several examples of where they decided to go down their own proprietary yep. technology. DraftKings, good example. Of DraftKings as well, yep. yep. That's a good, yep, very good one. Mm -hmm. um, and... But I think we're back to that point in the cycle where actually organisations need to look at third parties before they even start considering that. And the fact that we are very, very committed to regulated markets, both from a PAM and a sportsbook perspective, actually puts us at a bit, a bit of a, an advantage. Um, some people would suggest to me that the opportunity in the US is decreasing, whereas I would actually say it's increasing. Um, and that, that depends upon perception, absolutely. There's no question about it. But I think that it makes sense to invest with a third party, somebody like Gig, at the moment, opposed to putting a big risk and a lot of pressure on your organisation by either purchasing and then developing or developing from scratch your own technology stack. So I think there's a, an opportunity there for sure. Yeah, that's, that's interesting what you're saying. And uh, I suppose uh, a lot of... Um software providers uh, during the uh, 2020, 2021, and maybe 2022 period, I suppose we're quite nervous of the trends that were taking place here with vertical integration becoming more and more the norm. But I get the feeling as well that this trend is uh, kind of turning uh, a bit now. As, as you mentioned here, access to capital is a lot more difficult in a world where the interest rates are 5.5% and uh, investors aren't that hungry for investments right now. They are hungry to see uh, companies that are becoming more lean and cost efficient and, uh, uh, and, and, and slimmer and so on. And, and obviously working with third parties would be a way to go down that route. And I would assume that this is what the investors are looking for right now. Well, you can get an instant solution to your problem. Like every one of our target areas is, is tier ones who are looking to expand. Okay, so you might have somebody who's very specific to a particular market or region, but they have brand equity outside of that region and they want to operate there. Mm. But the technology is maybe is, is a little bit older or um, or they don't have the capacity in order to deliver a new market or the knowledge because as I say the, the, the regulation the regulatory framework isn't harmonized. So they look at somebody like us, a, a B2B platform that can deliver full end-to-end -end scenario and give them a quick fix in order to grow their revenue. And that's that's the point. Now in three, four years' time, I can't comment what the climate will be. I can't. Okay, we might end up at a situation where they decide they want to build their own or they want to invest. 
you know, that, 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 that's different. But at this point, there's a definite opportunity there to be able to bring quick value to these guys right. and give them the opportunity to get their ROI much quicker than they could do if they built their own. Right. So traditionally, uh, uh, Gig has predominantly approached, say, tier three, tier two operators uh, in size that definitely will not go down the route of, um, of building or acquiring their own technology. Whereas you're saying now that there is actually an opportunity to uh, approach tier one operators to try to sell these services. I, I suppose that this is a, a fairly new sentiment uh, as in uh, a couple of years ago, it would have been a lot more difficult to go down that route with, uh, with uh, this old approach of vertical integration. Is that uh, like, are you, are you seeing a change here? Is that what you think? No, I don't think it's necessarily a change. I think it's a change in options for the tier one. Yeah. I think that's the key, right? So I, I don't think that, some tier ones would have looked at it two, three years ago and seen a different um, solution. Because then the reason that I say that is that ultimately <clears throat> the regulatory frameworks are what impacts these organisations um, in terms of to deliver from a technology perspective. So it's the appetite in order to take a step into that world and be able to deliver it and probably have some unknowns about how long it's going to take. So that, that framework, that regulatory unharmonized approach has probably been prominent since 2018 2019 where every potential jurisdiction has been regulating one way or another so i think that that was definitely they looked at it and they were like okay do we do that ourselves, or do we do that with a third party but what i'm saying now is is that they look at it and they want a quicker return on investment and this is maybe a more prominent option for yeah, them yeah. but i'm sure that some some will continue to do it themselves yeah. because they want control but I just think it's it's for, for us it's a definite opportunity. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And um, looking at uh, now 2023, uh, just kind of the macroeconomic situation that the world is in, where there is like two sentiments of play right now that maybe we'll head towards a soft landing in the economy and everything will be fairly okay, or actually we are just behind the uh, the door from uh, potentially a deep recession. Uh, the uh, latest inflation numbers that came out from the US definitely seem to spur on the thesis, the second thesis that uh, the, we are not out of the, uh, we are not clear yet, uh, so to say. Um, does, have you seen, has this impact like your clients, uh, anything yet? Uh, the, uh, the high interest rates, the inflation rates, people having, you know, less uh, discretionary spending power and stuff like that, or, or do you not see any of those effects as of yet? I think I think if you look at our customer base, uh, particularly the more established customer base, and um, they continue to grow, and particularly within regulated markets. So as the um, as the the growth itself as a um, as a number is it the same as it was four or five years ago? Absolutely not, because regulated markets are tougher to grow in. It takes more investment. We reckon that in order to deliver the same sort of um, NGR on a monthly basis, you need to invest a third in, a third more into marketing mm. in order to deliver the same within same, a regulated yeah. market. So obviously the ROI is less than it would be. And I, I think that's just a given. I think everybody's aware of that. Um, so so that that maybe has seen a, um, that, that has definitely had an impact and marketing has, to, has had to increase in order to see growth. No question about it. Um, but you have to be clever. Again, I'll go back to, I don't want, uh, we're not an operator, all right? We are a, a platform provider. Um, and 
we assist a lot of our customers in order to be able to to grow. We give them options. We look at we're constantly trying to add solutions to our, to our platform. We're agnostic in terms of a platform. So if something new comes to the market that we think can drive value, then we'll deliver that on behalf of our customers. We try to be proactive in that manner. Um, but as you can see, over the last 2019 until... Um, the end of 2022 there where we just saw the Q4 results, the overall base is continuing to grow. So, yes, it's tough. Yes, you have to be clever. I think that the days of spending a pound and making five, <laughs> you know, I think that's gone. That's um, maybe in some markets, I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think those days are gone. I think it's become really competitive. There's no yep. question about it. So you need to have something unique. I always talk about three sort of main elements, Pierre, when we're talking to customers. So one is traffic. If you have traffic, then you can make a success of things, all right, significant traffic. One is brand, okay, so if you have a brand equity, then you can take advantage of that and conversions, for example, will, will definitely increase. Um, as a consequence, like for retail to online, we've done a, a lot of retail to online. Um, and then the third is, is obviously simple revenue and marketing spend by revenue i mean actual budget in order to be able to invest so if you can build something from scratch um, you need collateral behind you there's no question about it but those for me are the three key elements if you have one of those you've got a good chance of of being a success yeah uh, another interesting development let's say within uh, gaming innovation group recently is the fact that to some extent the business has gone full circle now um your founder robin eric reed <laughs> obviously a uh, controversial uh, around the 2019 time when the when the business uh, was uh, struggling uh, he was ousted from the business at that time and now three years later robin robin reed has just made an investment in uh, gaming innovation group through his fund uh, happy hour uh <laughs> Which is kind of like, you know, you get a little bit of like Steve Jobs vibes, uh, even, uh, you know, the, the appearance of Robin is a little bit Steve Jobs like uh, itself, I would say. Um, how does it feel to have Robin back in the business or like active? Uh, it must be a bit of a nostalgia trip. Well, I think everybody appreciates that Robin's a bit of an icon within the industry. I don't think anybody would question that. Um, he has built gig up until 2019, um, which... The growth, if you look back, again, nobody looks at that anymore, but the growth that Robin and the team achieved during that period was unparalleled, like going from 20 people in Tajbish to, to Gig Beach and various other offices around the around Europe. So, yeah, he's, he's an icon, there's no question about it. Um, and I know him to be, personally, I know him to be a very astute business guy. So... And as does the majority of the industry. Um, so when he turns around and he says that he's he's put an X amount of euros into gig because he's really happy with the position that they're in uh, and he, he believes that it will continue to grow and be successful, then that's just a confidence booster, both internally because it's an endorsement of what we're doing and, be, and making the right decisions, but both externally as well. Because a lot of people, I mean, he put it on his happy hour uh, Twitter from, from memory. Yep. Um, and we've seen a slight upturn in terms of acquisition of the share at that time. So he has influence. He's an influencer, really, from that perspective, right? <laughs> Not sure he would be happy 
happy eating that. But... No, no, I'll tell you. <laughs> did you hear the story, Martin, of when uh, when Robin moved the markets of Light and Wonder? Yes, I heard. That was hilarious. We <laughs> had to tell the story. So uh, back in, I uh, give me next uh, 2022, uh, let's say eight months ago, something like that. Robin made a prediction that Evolution would acquire Light and Wonder. And that day, the share price of Light and Wonder increased, or the, the, uh, the share value of, of Light and Wonder increased by like, I don't know, like 500 million or something like that. You're like an enormous amount. <laughs> and uh, thanks to Robin's statements there. So he, yes, I can uh, get behind that sentiment. He is definitely an influencer in this industry. Although it never happened. <laughs> it never happened. Never. Not yet. Not yet. Not, not yet. yet. Yep. Yep. We, we, we have to get back to that the next year. So I give you next and follow up on this. But uh, <laughs> it's quite funny. And as you mentioned, you know, the endorsement of having Robin Reed uh, as an investor in the organization, because, I mean, it, you, it cannot be understated how respected Robin is within the industry. Of He is seen as one of the smartest uh, persons within the industry who is on top of uh, the industry at large, certainly, but also on a granular level as well to understand where the opportunities are. Robin has made a couple of investments through Happy Hour, that have all turned out to be like wildly successful. And so the fact that he uh, decides that his next investment is within GIG is an absolute statement and is something that the, the, the company should be very proud of, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. No, we're happy with that. We're, we're happy with, um, with that endorsement. Uh, I mean, there's yeah. no question about it. It's great Absolutely. for us. Uh, so Martin, now um, we're going to start running off a little bit. But looking forward now into the into the future, uh, obviously the the business is now. Uh, becoming more focused on the platform side. Uh, when you go through the strategic review, eventually um, the platform business will be its own publicly traded uh, company. What are like what are your goals for the future? Now, what what's the ambitions with this company? Where do you want to go with this? Okay, so the goals don't change. This is this is the this is why the decision to split the and uh, the businesses in order to drive share, shareholder value was so obvious. Because the fact of the matter is, is that the goals that we're working to from the platform perspective are still exactly the same as they were six months ago. We have short, medium and term goals to hit and uh, long term goals to hit. So th those still remain exactly the same from a platform perspective. Yes, we had some um, departments within the organisation that worked across both, but 85, 90% of the of the personnel were working on specific platform or specific media goals. So they don't change at all. We're still working towards delivering those 20 customers that we, we signed up last year, making sure that they're generating revenue on the platform, continuing to target the types of customers that we're looking at. We spoke about the tier ones. We spoke about retail to online. Um, any sort of traditional online business that want to target regulated markets, these are our three key verticals from a customer perspective. So we continue to target them. Delivery is obviously a very important element, um, which if you'd spoken to me 18 months ago, delivery is always important, but it's, it's, it's vitally important now because when we bring in a customer, we need to fulfill our promises, fulfill what we've committed to. So that is a really important factor for sure. But that was that we always knew that was going to be the case. Um, so it's not a case of the eye of Sauron moving entirely. <laughs> you know, it's not it's not it's not moving entirely. It's staying where it is and it's focusing on um, on the, the goals that we've we've already set. So it's it, it doesn't change. 
I like the analogy, Martin. Um, so, so essentially, uh, the, uh, you're not looking to reinvent the wheel. You have a strategy that works, and you're continuing to build on this strategy, perhaps becoming more operationally uh, like uh, um, uh, streamlined uh, as well. I saw in the report that you are aiming towards, th this is for the full business, I suppose, but you're aiming towards a profit margin of like 50%, uh, an EBITDA margin of 50%, which is I mean, incredible EBITDA margin if you manage to yep. succeed, succeed with that. I don't know if that translates over to the uh, platform side. Perhaps. That's a combination of both. For yeah, sure. yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But uh, it seems to be that the idea is uh, essentially uh, the strategy works, you know, continue to build on, on, on the strategy, uh, uh, improve over time and uh, not uh, make any like, uh, you know, to major transformations or uh, major directional changes in the business is continue kind of to yeah, do what you do. Absolutely. I mean, the, there's a, um, an acronym that we use a lot within the organization. It's KISS. Now, um, a lot of people like it to be KIS. I like it actually to be KISS. So, <laughs> and it's keep, keep it simple, stupid. You know, so so this is and this is uh, yeah. you know you can be in these situations and you can complicate the life out of the yeah. uh, out of the scenario. The fact of the matter is, is we're on a positive trajectory. We have been since twenty nineteen. We've made a lot of changes. We spoke about the white labels. Uh, we spoke about being having own licensed operators. Um, you know, we spoke about the managed services. It, it's it's complicated enough without us making it any more complicated. You know, so it's. It's about keeping it simple. It's about being obvious to everybody what we do. Um, it's, it's really important that, that that's the case because I think in the past, and I know from data, specific data that was compiled, is that a lot of people didn't know what Gig did. You know, because we did have a studio at one point. We did do B2C. We did have this. We did have that. And we, and we definitely had a very storytelling type of marketing which in a growth period definitely works, right? I, I'm, I, I totally advocate that, but we're at a different period of the maturity of the organization now. So we need to strip it back and keep it simple. And yeah, that's, yeah. that's definitely what we're doing. Absolutely. It seems to be that the GIG is a business with a, with a lot of scar tissue that has grown through uh, the challenges that it's had. And, and uh, again, going back to your point of finding maturity in the business. So uh, just again, the congratulations to the success uh, recently. It comes obviously from a lot of hard and focused work. And and listen, it's not just, um, it's the entire team. And I, I want to really hit that home. It's really important that everybody acknowledges the part that they've had to play in this over the last um, three or four years. It's been a big, it's, it's a big movement of an organization and we've done it and we're really, really proud of what we've achieved. So everybody should, at gig or previously of gig should give themselves a pat on the back. Yeah, absolutely. Martin, it's been a pleasure once again to have you here on the podcast. And I forget to, to mention this in the beginning, but uh, you are uh, one of the OGs, one of the originals here on the podcast. <laughs> this is not the first time we do this together. Yeah. And certainly not the last, I hope. But uh, thank you so much for giving me your time today. No, thanks for having me, Pierre. All the best. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs>